afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Notre Dame Stadium. Zivikowski trying to get to the outside. He has blockers in front. Time for Zivikowski. Belong to beat. Shakes it off. To the five and touchdown. And now it is down. It is over. And the Irish have knocked off number one Clemson. Brady Quinn looking. Pump fakes. He rolls to the near side. Throws it. It's caught by Samaja. Inside the 20. Inside the 10. He's going in. Notre Dame has scored. Jones is the back. He's got it again. And Jones a letter room. Tony Jones makes a cut. Gets a block. And scores. Is that the play that will seal the playoff bid for Fighting Irish? What's up? Welcome to Sons of Saturday Irish. I'm Tyler Rojack. And with me as always is my co-host Luke Smith. Uh, for the second week in a row, Notre Dame cruised to a stress-free victory as they suffocated the Virginia Cavaliers from the opening snap and won by a final score of 28-3. to It certainly wasn't the most exciting game. I think that's obvious to anyone who watched, but there's still plenty to talk about because we saw a ton of young guys get some action for one. Um, Virginia's the last team on Notre Dame's schedule with a winning record, so now the Irish look poised to finish the regular season 11-1, and they still have an outside shot of making the college football playoff, something that seemed literally impossible just over a month ago. And let's not forget, a few weeks ago, we were literally begging for an anticlimactic win like this, so I very much enjoyed watching the Irish handle business for 60 minutes straight, and I think Luke feels the same. So we'll get into all that, go over what we liked and didn't like from the game on Saturday, and of course, we'll hand out some free drinks at the end. But first, we'll start with our boots on the ground, like we always do. Luke, how was the scene in Charlottesville this weekend? It was a beautiful weekend in Charlottesville and, and walking around campus or grounds as they call it there um really one of the more college you know just feels like a college town atmospheres one of the better ones i've experienced going around to different schools um and sneaky good game day environment uh stopped by a bunch of tailgates on saturday uh one hosted by our our friends the voland family um one by my good family friends the lewis's my old boss matt laughlin who's a uva grad uh, had a tailgate of his own that was a lot of fun, and then my my uncle, who's a UVA grad, had his old uh, Fiji fraternity tailgate as well. So I, I kind of made my way across the different lots. It was a lot of fun. We did have some recruiting news this past week. Uh, first, in good news, Notre Dame got a commitment from offensive lineman Emil Wagner, which nobody saw coming. Uh, I think a lot of people thought he was going to Kentucky, but surprise Notre Dame fans and the coaching staff by announcing his commitment to Notre Dame last week. Another big pickup for Jeff Quinn in that offensive line room. Unfortunately, the bigger recruiting news coming out of that week was probably Sonny Styles. Um, we've talked about him, I think, a little bit on this podcast with Mike Singer. He was Notre Dame's top dog in the 2023 recruit class, number six player overall. Looks like he's 35 years old, brother of Lorenzo Styles. Took a lot of people by surprise, but he committed to Ohio State on Saturday. Not, maybe not necessarily a surprise that he committed to Ohio State, but the timing of it was a little bit surprising, uh, given he had just visited Notre Dame a handful of times. I know a few of my friends had seen him at the Outback Steakhouse three weekends in a row in South Bend. So um, that's maybe that's thing. why he committed to Ohio State because they're going. <laughs> Out, to Outback right, we can blame Outback. That Bloomin' Onion sucked, <laughs> but it had to be the service. Too slow. I mean, they are mean there. I will give him that. But, you know, I, I don't really like talking about recruiting because it's weird to kind of break down 17-year-old kids' life choices, and I want to respect that. But 
I kind of had this moment myself when I was walking around Charlottesville on Friday night and Saturday morning. Um, you know, like I said, really beautiful town and everything, but I remembered going back to my own experience, picking between Notre Dame and Virginia coming out of high school. And I don't <laughs> want to compare myself to Sonny Styles because I was like a soft throwing righty on the baseball team and a backup shooting guard on the basketball team, not a highly touted, uh, touted athlete, but I just remember like walking around UVA, touring it in high school, thinking this is really cool, but it's not Notre Dame. I just wouldn't be fully comfortable here. And I got to believe, you know, it's a very similar thing with Sonny Styles. Like, like Notre Dame, obviously, he was there a number of times, but um, it's just not the same. And um, Ohio State was where he felt most comfortable. So with that, I mean, wish him the best of luck. Obviously, there's a lot of time. Who knows? Maybe something could change. But like, I just think it's funny. Like, I was thinking about my own college experience and that's kind of how I chose schools ultimately and I I have to imagine it was a a very similar process for him from what we've heard it was a very difficult choice but anyways back to the weekend um definitely a lot of ND fans in Charlottesville I'd say that they outweighed the amount of UVA fans there but I felt like a lot of UVA fans still made the trip um all very pleasant really I mean maybe I was biased because I like UVA like I said but um I didn't really have any bad interactions at all with the posing fans, um, you know, I felt like we kind of knew what was going to happen. I was pretty adamant on the pregame show that Armstrong was not going to play, um, and I was proved correct. Uh, Friday night, we were at the bar, and I started getting texts that uh, the line was moving right in the in form of in, in favor of Notre Dame. Actually, I think Greg was the one that was DMing us. I couldn't find it on DraftKings. I thought they took it down. I just realized it's actually illegal to bet on uh, Virginia schools in the state of Virginia like it is to do the same with Illinois. Uh, here. I didn't know that. Yeah, so that's why I couldn't find the line. Uh, but it did move, I think, to 7.5 and maybe 8.5 by game time. So you kind of knew Armstrong wasn't going to play. Um, walking around Saturday, just talking to different uh, – Talking to different UVA fans, they didn't seem really confident he was going to play. And then I kind of, uh, I think, got full wind of it when I was walking by a radio show and they were saying, like, yeah, I don't think there's any way Armstrong's going to play tonight. So that was, you know, that the game was pretty ho-hum. But a lot of fun in downtown Charlottesville, uh, hitting Miller's both nights, which is best known as a bar where Dave Matthews played before getting big. So very interesting scene, a lot of indoor heat with cigarettes and cigars galore. I hadn't <laughs> experienced that in, like, six years um, but we actually ran into Chris Long there after the game Saturday night too. So that was interesting, uh, but a really, really fun weekend. Um, I'm sure we'll get more into the game itself, but, uh, definitely glad I made the trip, got to see a lot of family and, and friends. So a uh, worthwhile trip. Yeah. I've seen several people now. I think Pete Sampson from the athletic mentioned it too, in his post game recap that Charlottesville is a sneaky, good college football town. One you wouldn't expect given Virginia's lack of, historical football success, but it seems like a great environment. Anyone who's ever been there talks about how beautiful the campus is. So I'm not too surprised by that. It looked really cold on the TV. It was freezing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you're right. It is a good college town, but it's interesting because Charlottesville isn't like South Bend. It could actually exist by itself is what I mean by that. Like there's a whole separate downtown area that's more like I was staying with my buddy who was in law school there. So that's kind of where we were at. Um, but there's then the corner, which is like the strip of college bars. I didn't see, I didn't go to any of those at all. It was kind of more downtown Charlottesville, which is really pretty. Um, but that was kind of like the one big takeaway I had is that, oh, wow, this is a city that could actually exist on its own without the university, unlike South Bend. Um, so there you have it. Yeah. I mean, 
that'd be a good thought exercise. I don't know if I really want to explore it, but what would South Bend be like without Notre Dame? Um, maybe a question for another show. But uh, as for the game, it was very relaxing, uh, almost boring, you could say. Mm-hmm. But it makes you feel like the game against Toledo was like a lifetime ago. Um, it, it wasn't super exciting, but I still feel like there's a lot to gain from it. I mentioned at the top, a lot of young guys saw some action once Notre Dame got up. They sort of called off the dogs, and you mentioned Brendan Armstrong not playing. You were totally right on about that. Um, I don't know if Virginia was trying to throw everyone for a loop by maybe leaking some information that he was going to start because several writers, not just nationally, but also on the Notre Dame beat as well, seemed pretty confident that he was going to play. He ends up not playing, and then Drew White and Myron Tagovailo Amosa from Notre Dame also didn't play. Brian Kelly said in the postgame press conference that the flu, not covid sort of went through not just the Notre Dame football team, but really the campus um, last week. And they're actually still dealing with the effects of that. So a lot of guys out, and Virginia sort of just laid down. They they didn't have a whole lot to lose in terms of their standing in the ACC. So they didn't really seem to care this much. And you mentioned the line. I want to give a shout-out to Douglas Farmer. Uh, He works for Covers, which is a betting site. He was all over that early um, on Friday, mentioning that the line was shifting heavily to Notre Dame. And when you see like a two-and-a-half-point movement the night before a game. You know someone big isn't playing or something drastic is happening, and sure enough, he was right. So a little bit weird when you consider at the beginning of the year when we were talking about Notre Dame having seven captains, and we joked that um, Notre Dame's success would come down to the amount of captains. Well, in a way, it kind of is, because on Saturday they just played with three of those seven initial captains from the start of the season and somehow, some way, Notre Dame is getting better despite getting younger, which is uh, borderline impossible to do. You're right. And actually, five of our seven captains have missed at least a game this year because Kurt Heinisch missed two games. So it's like, it's really insane, honestly. Um, I, I don't really, I, I don't know. But you, you also mentioned kind of younger guys playing, like once they took the, the you know, call the dogs off a little bit. They had Jaden Thomas play on the first drive of the game. Uh, and we hadn't seen him once all year. Like there were multiple drives out there where we had Jaden Thomas, Dion Colsey and Matt Salerno out there at, at wide receiver. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, the obvious lack of health at the receiver position right now is maybe preventing Notre Dame from playing some of that, um, you know, more up-tempo offense that we saw for a couple of games at immediately after the bye. We kind of saw some longer drives, uh, less explosive. And I think that that plays into it. I also think that the flu plays into it and probably explains a lot about Notre Dame's overall approach to Saturday night's game, um, which we can get into later. But yeah, you're right. It was kind of a, a snoozer. Um, but I'll take that over sweating out Toledo. Yeah, I think I'll take just about anything over sweating out Toledo. But you mentioned the safeties. Let's get into it because this youth movement that Notre Dame is going through, a lot of it or a lot of the discussion has been around the offense and for good reason. You've seen true freshmen like Tyler Buckner, Logan Diggs, Lorenzo Styles, Deion Colsey, to name a few, really make a name for themselves. But now we're seeing guys like Ramon Henderson on the defense who is not a true freshman, but still really coming out of nowhere to, at a position that he hasn't played all year. Right. Uh, both safeties had picks, and one of them was playing safety for the very first time in Ramon Henderson. Um, I hadn't really seen him do anything of note all season. Like, I, I just didn't really know what to make of him. Other than getting his ass chewed out on the sideline by Brian Kelly. That's I like didn't the see big, that. The most, yeah, there was, I think it was the, no, I think it was Purdue. 
it was definitely Purdue because that was the game when Notre Dame was running a bunch of dime and dollar sets, and he was the first time he was getting legit action, and he didn't go out on the field when he was supposed to, and Kelly let him have it on the sideline. It was funny because Kelly was ripping into him in one ear, and then Myron was like right next to him, sort of with his arm wrapped around him, like it's gonna be okay, buddy. Like it's we'll get through this. But it was one of those like purple face Brian Kelly ass chewings we really haven't seen in a while, but he redeemed himself. Yeah, and then there was that quote in the in the preseason where Kelly said that him and Cam Hart were the best cornerback tandem in the country. Um, so that was an interesting one as well. But that was kind of the only I had really noticed of him. Um, but apparently he was moved to safety on Tuesday while battling the flu himself, and he looked like a football player for the first time really ever. Um, he was quick to give credit to DJ Brown in the postgame on telling him where to go on the play. He had his pick. Um, and Brown also had a pick himself to cap off the game, which was nice to see. Um Sucks there's no Kyle Hamilton, but really good to see these two guys have some success because um, I don't want to say this in a harsh way, but there's no other way to say it. Houston Griffith just brings nothing of value. Um, There was a play this week where a fumble falls right in his lap and he can't even scoop that up. Instead, Jelani Woods for UVA picks it up for a fumble. Um, They're just – Pete Sampson had a stat today in his article showing tackles – per snap or something like that. Like how many plays is it? How many snaps does it take for somebody to get a tackle? And Houston was the lowest of all of the safeties. Um, We also saw a stat this week that heading into this game, Houston Griffith had 533 uh, passing snaps for his career and only two passes broken up out of those 533. Like that's almost hard to do. It's like he's running away from the play. Um, I'm sure that, you know, maybe the staff likes him, they tried to bring him back for a reason this year, but when you watch him play and now you see these younger guys play, and granted it's against lesser competition, but even Xavier Watts, like they're just bringing so much more to the table than Houston Griffith. Uh, and it makes me excited about the future because safety is obviously a, a, a position of question moving forward, but what these guys have been able to do the last couple of weeks has been promising to see. Very promising, and something that we considered when Kyle Hamilton went out, we were like, this sucks because – there's nothing Notre Dame gains from it in the now, and it's not even like they're bringing in young guys to play in the future because it was just DJ Brown and Houston Griffith, and both guys are a little bit older, but now we're seeing Xavier Watts. Now we're seeing Ramon Henderson. They're taking advantage of their time on the field, and now those guys are going to be around for a little bit, so it's pretty exciting. And you're right. You mentioned Houston Griffith. We certainly aren't guys who like to bash players. Or I feel like we're always pretty fair in saying that, like, look, we're not there in practice every day, and you said, like, Marcus Freeman – made it a point to try to get Houston Griffith back out of the transfer portal as soon as he got the job as defensive coordinator at Notre Dame. I'm sure there's stuff on tape or in practice that we're not seeing. But when you look at the stats, yeah, it, it just it's hard to defend anymore. And you mentioned the stat about snaps played per tackle this season. Xavier Watts at 3.1, Ramon Henderson at 7.7. Again, granted, much smaller sample sizes for those guys. DJ Brown, 9.5. Houston Griffith at 14.4. It's just, it's really hard to defend that. He hasn't really been active. He doesn't get a lot of picks, pass breakups. And now, you know, he you wonder what his impact is going to be on the team going forward because by the second half, he wasn't in. If you look at the total snap counts among the safeties, he finishes with 28. Xavier Watts is 19. DJ Brown is 41. And uh, Ramon Henderson is 47. So that'll be something to follow going forward. But... I don't really see him being a part uh, of the starting lineup anymore going forward. That might not come out on the depth chart, but we'll see it on Saturday, most likely against Georgia Tech. I'd be pretty surprised if they bench him for senior day. 
Good point. But then after that, could be different. But I think he'll probably start yeah. this week. Um, more positives. Before the game, I said Braden Lindsay was due for a big game. I'm going to say what he had was uh, was good enough for a big game. He had three catches <laughs> for 23 yards and a touchdown, also a sweep for 31 yards. Um, the touchdown was a really nice play designed by Tommy Reese. Good to see him have some success, and it was really good to see both him and Styles on the field at the same time. Both get some action on sweeps. I uh, really thought that, you know, Tommy Reese called a really good first half, and, and, I mean, obviously they took the foot off the gas a little bit in the second half, which we understand why, but I, I think I liked what they did offensively in the first half, getting those guys involved. Totally. And I, on the same show, I mentioned that Michael Mayer's past few games are relatively quiet on the stat sheet, at least uh, for his standards. So that's one thing for me. Um, part of Mayer's lack of like statistical success for the past few games, some of that is due to injury. We know he's been dealing with the nagging groin injury since fall camp, same one that sidelined him for the Virginia Tech game. And then part of this has to do with the fact that Cohen really wasn't seeing him a whole lot. And again, you know, defenses are keying on him in every game plan because he's so talented. But on Saturday, he returned to his dominant form. He finished with seven catches for 84 yards, a touchdown, and he made the play of the game when he reached around um, one of the UVA linebackers back and just caught a pass, ripped it off from behind him, and then immediately flexed on him before flipping the ball. That's the Michael Mayer we know. And it honestly seems almost unfair uh, that he still has another year of college because he's pretty clearly a man amongst boys out there, despite the fact that I think he's only 20 years old. Um, but I'm certainly not complaining, and I'm super pumped to have him around next year because he's only going to get better. I mean, I was actually thinking about this earlier tonight, just the dominance of Notre Dame at the tight end position the last God knows how long, but like the most recent kind of crop of tight ends they've had is so impressive. Brock Wright is getting a ton of run with the Lions right now. Granted, the Lions suck, but he is playing <laughs> a lot for the Lions, and he was undrafted. He's getting a lot of praise, too. It's just this dominant number two run blocker. Tommy Tremble's playing a bunch for the Panthers. Of course, Cole Komet and Brock Wright were in the same recruiting class, number one and two tight ends in the country. Um, and now you have Michael Mayer, who might be the best of them, who is the best of them all. I mean, Really just like a very impressive run. I mean, Notre Dame obviously has had this extended run of great tight ends, but this last four or five, whatever it is of them, really, really impressive run by that group. Yeah, when you think about having a true freshman basically take reps away from a guy. Who's now playing in the NFL. Yeah, scoring touchdowns. Drafted third round, and I know Tremble and Mayor's style is different, but still taking reps away from him is, well, is really, really impressive. Yeah, taking snaps from two guys getting snaps in the NFL now. Yeah, so really, really impressive. Yeah, and part of the creativity you mentioned, obviously Notre Dame is without senior captain Avery Davis, their starting slot receiver for the rest of the season. And we mentioned before how Tommy Reese is going to have to get real creative now considering how thin – Notre Dame is at receiver. And we saw Mayer play a little bit in the slot and created some um, advantages for him. They were obviously able to take advantage of that. But also wanted to give a shout-out to Tommy Reese because he was just nominated for the Broyles Award, which is given out to the top assistant coach in college football all year. I know that message boards love to rip on him, and I know that a lot of Notre Dame fans, like, are you even watching a Notre Dame game if you aren't complaining about Tommy Reese on the Internet at the same time? Never really understood that. If you think about all the things that Notre Dame's had to deal with this year, especially on offense, the injuries on the offensive line, the shuffling, the uncertainty at the quarterback position, I know it hasn't all been smooth sailing for the offense this season, but given where the offense is now after dealing with all of that is really, really impressive. Part of that is due to Tommy Reese. And specifically looking at Saturday, 
I thought what Notre Dame did was great. Lorenzo Styles got his first career start at the slot position, but he only played 19 snaps, and then Notre Dame mixed and matched with the rest. Michael Mayer got in there. You saw Notre Dame run a lot more 21 personnel with two running backs on the field at the same time. Patrick Engel at Blue and Gold pointed out that Notre Dame ran seven plays with two running backs on the field in the last four games. They ran a bunch of it against Cincinnati, but that was mostly because they had to max protect. That was back when the offensive line simply didn't know how to how to block. Um, but against Virginia, they used the 21 personnel two-back formation 15 times. And honestly, most of their most effective plays came in that personnel and now that Chris Tyree is healthy again, Logan Diggs is emerging. We could see this a lot more going forward. And as of now, it looks like a real healthy alternative um, without Avery Davis on the field. Without a doubt. Um, first off, on the Tommy Reese news, congrats to him. First, happy that makes me happy for a couple of reasons. First, friend of the program, very well-deserved. As you mentioned, he's had his hands tied at times with the early struggles of the offensive line, injuries. I think he's done a really great job this year. Um the other part of that is that I know how much it probably pisses some Notre Dame fans off who are idiots. So that really That's also true. makes me happy. Um, so congrats to Tommy. In terms of creativity, uh, how about players making creativity on their own? Logan Diggs' hurdle was insane. He was in the so air awesome. for four yards. And I tweeted this when it happened. The last time somebody hurled somebody right in front of me, because this is, again, like pretty much right where I was sitting, it was Najee Harris over Nick McLeod in Dallas. Uh, not nearly as fun to watch. This time I was like, holy shit. I, I, I don't remember a Notre Dame player ever doing that. I, I just don't. Or anything even close to it. You know what I mean? When he did it, I was like, wait, is that even allowed? Like, I thought there was going to be a flag. Is there a Notre Dame player allowed to do that? I thought that is only allowed to happen against us. But it was great. And um, just... Logan Diggs is a freak. Knowing that he's only a true freshman and knowing that we basically stole him away from LSU is just so, so great. Although today, I don't know if you saw this, but he, he tweeted this morning. He's like, the snow caught me off guard. I wasn't ready. Hopefully, the snow isn't too much to yeah. um, like sway him back to LSU. But I think LSU's final record this season will, uh, I don't think he's going to give that any thought. I mean, I think he's going to be the lead back next year and Tyree's going to be kind of in the same role again. So, uh, yeah, no doubt about that. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say, this was truly the first game all year that was completely drama-free. I know Notre Dame got stopped on that fourth and one on their first drive, but they immediately responded with forcing a three and out and then scored on their next drive. Like, there was not a shred of doubt in this game. Um, probably the most relaxed I had been going into a game, just talking to UVA fans. They kind of thought they were going to get their asses handed to them. Uh, they didn't think Armstrong was going to play. Stadium Sir Beer, really interesting system, too. Um, they give you a wristband, and then they march your hand with an X, even if you had the wristband, which I think you're used to like getting X'd if you're underage. But this yeah. was like the thickest X I've ever had. A, I've taken <laughs> like four showers since. I still can't get this thing all the way off. But then when you would get a drink – they would mark it on the wristband. You could only get a maximum of four, which is honestly a pretty smart way to do it if you're trying to limit that, like especially when you have students at a game, probably don't want to get them too out of hand. So I'd never seen that before, but I thought it was an interesting system. Um, but, yeah, I, it was just a really relaxing game. I was kind of able to sit back, though it was cold as hell. Um, I had a really, really just, you know, all right, this is uh, kind of just the game that's on, and I'm not worried about anything. The only time I've ever had an X on my hand, was if I was like at an 18 over bar, but wasn't 21. 
I I can't I don't understand why you would put an X. I feel like that's a pretty clear indicator of someone who can't drink, but whatever. Virginia, they're smarter than me over there. Yeah. Um one last thing I wanted to give a shout out to on things we liked before we move over is um I can't believe we even haven't we haven't mentioned it by now is the defense and specifically the defensive line. And I know without Brendan Armstrong, the Virginia offense is a lot less potent. He's clearly their best player. He is their run game. He is their passing game. But it was clear from the start that Notre Dame was going to be extremely aggressive with a true freshman QB back there for Virginia. Notre Dame blitzed on 51% of Virginia's dropbacks, and that sort of aggressiveness paid off. Notre Dame finished with seven sacks. They had a couple picks, and five different players got in on the action in the backfield. Riley Mills led the way with two sacks. He ended up getting the game ball. He was filling in at the big end spot for MTA. As we mentioned, he was out with the flu. Bo Bauer had one and a half. Justin Adamiola had one and a half. Howard Cross got one. Clarence Lewis CPA even got one. I can't even remember the last time we had a cornerback get a sack since like Kavari Russell. But this was made possible by a dominant effort on the D-line. Notre Dame just had bigger, better, faster, stronger players on the D-line. It was evident from the first play. So even if Brennan Armstrong was back there, don't get me wrong, I'm sure the Virginia offense would have been a lot better and this game would have been way closer. But like, there's no way he would have been able to handle running around for his life for four quarters because it didn't really matter who was back there. No one was blocking Notre Dame's D-linemen. They were in the backfield every play, and it showed from beginning to the end, even when Notre Dame called off the dogs, they were still in the backfield on every single snap. We've kind of become used to it, honestly. I feel like maybe that's why we didn't mention it until later because the D-line has been probably the best position group on the team all year. It'd be hard to argue otherwise, but just another awesome performance by that entire group. The thing you said about Clarence Lewis, I feel like Julian Love definitely had a sack or two. Oh, that's true. Yeah, Julian Love definitely was back yeah, there. Yeah, like the Virginia Tech return for a fumble was a strip sack. Um, good call. But good call, though. Uh, the defensive line, you're right. And it was like really nice to see players like Riley Mills and Bo Bauer, who we had heard really good things about in camp. And obviously, Bo Bauer has played well this year, but specifically yeah. Riley Mills, um, who we'd heard a lot about in camp, finally get his opportunity and really, you know, made the most of it. And then he got Mike Elston's first class seat on the plane ride home. So that was cool. I mean, Mike Elston, that guy is kind of just a rock star right now, I feel like. And he was the one that really pushed for Notre Dame to play more players on the defensive line. Really, if you just look at their philosophical change on the defensive line, where in 2015, Isaac Rochelle and Jerry, not Jerry Tillery, uh, and Sheldon Day were playing every snap, and now it's like just the rotation. I mean, it just keeps everybody fresh. It's, it's really kind of what you need to do with the defensive line. Um, another really strong performance from them, and that's, hey, two straight weeks that the opponent hasn't scored a touchdown. I know that teams, you know, people might say we needed style points on offense, and while I can understand that, I think it's pretty significant when you don't have a touchdown two weeks in a row too. So um, that was nice to see. Also, because I know somebody will comment on this because I just realized – why they do the X on your hand. Um, so I need, to, I need to talk about this because somebody's going to point out my ignorance if I don't. So you know how I said that they mark the wristband then with the number of drinks on, your, uh, on the wristband itself and you can only have four? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If they didn't mark your hand with an X, you could just go to another stand, get another wristband, and then start it again. So you have the, you have the X on your hand so that then – like the wristband is already kaput. Anyways, I just wanted to walk through it. I figured it out. That was some uh, high level thinking here on this Monday night, but uh, there we go. <laughs> okay, thank you. And now moving on to what we didn't like. Honestly, not a whole lot that I didn't like. But anything stand out to you? Probably fans still finding things to complain about. 
Um, I was so surprised. Well, why was I surprised is probably the better question, but it just seemed everything I saw after the game was like fire Kelly, fire Reese. Why do you, why didn't they keep their foot on the gas? And it's like, well, first off, they had a team that had 13 guys have the flu last week. Like they probably didn't, they just wanted to get through that game and get back to South Bend and get everybody healthy, get everybody some IVs. Once I learned that, that made a lot more sense. I will say, I was annoyed when we got the ball back after the uh, Ramon Henderson pick up 21, nothing. And we didn't try to score with a minute 16 left. But then once Brian Kelly got into it after the game with the health of the team, it made a lot of more sense to me. Like I said, um, the same crew that's, you know, complaining about this is mostly the same crew that's saying we need to play Buckner all the time now. And Cohen should be done because we're through Virginia. Well, guess what? Uh, Buckner got the entire fourth quarter and he did lead a really nice drive, but then, you know, there was a freshman mix up down by the goal line. We fumbled the ball. If that doesn't happen. And if, uh, you know, we don't come up short on that first drive, it's 42 to three. That's kind of what the game felt like to me anyways, but you know, fans will still complain. We won the game by 25 points covered the live line and the opening line and people are still pissed off. So whatever, Notre Dame fans suck, but nothing's new there. Um, I guess I'll also say it was cold as hell. Like I really underestimated the temperature in Virginia. Like I said, I flew out there Wednesday for work. It was beautiful. I flew out to DC Wednesday for work. It's beautiful. The first couple days, 70 degrees, sunny. And when we got to Charlottesville, it was like 65 and sunny Friday, but Saturday, it's about 55 and partly sunny, but super cloudy. And once the sun went down, I was freezing my ass off. Uh, the last couple night games in South Bend, I had my big winter jacket, and I almost felt like I didn't need it. So I didn't bring it to Virginia, thinking that it was going to be warmer. Uh, that was a mistake. I was cold, and I as I kind of felt like a rookie. I'm not going to lie to you. It was kind of a rookie move, not having the jacket. <laughs> and uh, it's, I see I that it's, it's a Notre Dame fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm seeing that there's snow on the field this week in South Bend, so I'm hoping that that's you know melts by Saturday because I'm not doing that. I, I can't. I, I I've grown really thin blooded, I guess, in my old age. I I can't do these games, dude. There is nothing worse than not being prepared for how cold it is for a football game because you're out there all day and. Once you're cold and you're out there, you can't really layer up anymore. So you just have to sit there and deal with it and hope that your alcohol jacket can do the best that it can because otherwise it can be kind of miserable. I can remember one game specifically. It was my freshman year. I believe it was Notre Dame-Stanford, the game when Golson threw that game yeah, with a touchdown. it was to like Koyak. sleeting. Yeah, it was sleeting and it was early on in the year. I don't think anyone anticipated how cold it would be and the precipitation that would come down. It was cold. It was wet. It was rainy. And I realized very early on in the tailgate, like, I'm screwed. And then I had to go to the bookstore and just end up spending way too much money to to try to lay up as much as possible. But it still just wasn't enough because I, I was already pretty cold. And now at this point... I am team overdress. If there's even a chance that it's going to be pretty cold, I will be layered up. I'll probably look like um, Ralphie from A Christmas Story, and I don't care. I'll handle any name-calling you want. I'm not going to be cold. I'm not going to have another rookie move, I guess, like you did this weekend. But fortunately, the last couple of games I've been to have been um, very warm. But one thing I want to say about what I didn't like about this game was Virginia, for the most part, just laid down. They didn't really care about this one, and... Based on the discussions with the coaches in the pregame, it seemed clear to me that Virginia just didn't care much about the result in this one. Dave Pash called them out on the broadcast. 
I want to point out, you're clarifying your wrongs. I said on the preview that it was going to be Herb Street and Fowler. Very stupid of me. Of course, they were going to be doing the SEC game. So instead, we got Dave Pash and Dusty. Had several people point that out to me. Thank you. <laughs> I acknowledge that. That was way off. But anyway, Pash basically went in on the Virginia coaching staff in the fourth quarter once the game was well in hand. And honestly, for good reason, because Mendenhall said over and over, the result of this game didn't impact their goals. And I understand like why you would prioritize your standing in the ACC and, and the potential to win a conference championship, something they haven't done in a long time. But like in football, if you ever like send a message to your team that it's okay to lose, that just becomes a very slippery slope. And it to me, it seemed clear that Virginia just, they went into that game knowing that like, okay, we could sort of punt on this result because they had no intensity and they showed very little effort from the first snap in the game. And I think this is like a broader thing in all sports. Like it's why I hate tanking in professional sports because <laughs> on one hand, like in the NBA, like I get if you tank, you get a higher draft pick and there's certainly plenty of benefits for that. If it's one year, I get it. Like look at what the Warriors did the year where everyone was hurt. But bigger picture, once you make it okay to lose – like culturally around a program or an organization, like that's a very difficult stain to wipe off. And honestly, I'm hoping that Virginia drops one of these games coming up because I think a big reason why the game was so boring is because they just didn't care. And that's a weird experience for me because every time Notre Dame plays an opponent, we're so used to getting their best shot. So when that's not the case and you see an opponent just basically lie down because their best player is out, it just sends a horrible message, and it just took away. And, and now it's really hard for me to get all that excited about anything about this game as it pertains to this year's team. Like, other than the fact that it's great to see some young guys get out there and gain some confidence, like, what does Notre Dame really have to gain from kind of beating up on a team that didn't even want to be there, even though it was a home night game on ABC? I don't know. That just really rubbed me the wrong way. Maybe I'm ranting, but I was really turned off by that. It was kind of surprising to me for a couple of reasons. Um, I mean, Virginia fans were not happy about it, and that's they showed oh, so that. So they recognized it too. Oh yeah, I, the, everybody I talked to before the game was like, "Well, why did I even come this weekend?" Then basically, um, which yeah, I get a home game, night game, yeah, which yeah. which I what get. Message does that send to your fans? Um, and well, I'll tell you what. By the end of the game, it looked like a high school game. The only fans left were Notre Dame yeah, fans. I mean, true. it was cold as hell. I'll, I'll give you that much. It was a sellout, and then it was empty. So um, that sucks. Also, a little bit surprising to me because Bronco Mendenhall fucking hates Notre Dame. Um, and here's why, <laughs> because we ne- did never, on- we never honored the home game in Provo when he was at BYU and said, that's going to be in Vegas. Finally, next year, he was the coach there. He was pissed about that for years. So I thought he would have taken every chance to try to stick it to Brian Kelly and ruin his season, but he didn't, I guess he must've been looking out for Brendan Armstrong because, uh, if he took the seven sacks that that backup did on Saturday night. He might have a couple kidney infections. I don't know if that's possible to have multiple kidney infections, but uh, but if it is, it could happen to him. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not a doctor, but yeah, I thought that's why I was kind of surprised by that. Um, and yeah, like I said, people were not happy about it. And you're right, it really did. Like once I knew he wasn't playing, well, it was. I'll be honest, I was like, great. Now I don't have to worry about this game. But also, it kind of takes the wind out of the sails a little bit. It's just, and when it's cold, it's just not that interesting. And that's kind of what I, where I want to go next, and it's a bigger-picture conversation. Like I said, the game was drama-free, but it was nice, but it was also really boring. And I'll be honest with you, this ACC thing's getting pretty pretty boring, too. Uh, we've won 23 straight in the regular season against ACC teams. Have not lost to one of them since that debacle in Miami in 2017. Um, so that's really you know what, almost 
four, it is four full years since we've lost one of those in the regular season. The schools are all really boring and the same. Um, none of them are good except Clemson, and this year Clemson's not good. It's just like we need a new challenge. Uh, opt out of this. I know when we signed up for this, we thought Florida State was going to be better. They haven't been good. Louisville's fallen off some. North Carolina hasn't been as good as they expected to, but I'm just kind of sick of this thing. Like it, it, I've been to pretty much every school in the ACC now. They're all kind of cool schools, but um, I'm just kind of sick of playing this boring ho-hum schedule with the ACC seven times a year. I, I know that that's a lot easier said than done, but I would almost rather we do this with the Big Ten. Like I think that would be more interesting. I'm kind of just sick of the ACC. It's It's boring. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you. It has gotten kind of boring, but that's sort of like when we vent our thoughts about the Navy game. Like, we can get right. tired of it, but this isn't going away anytime soon. No, and and I mean, I don't want to, like, undersell winning. Winning's awesome. Like, it's it's made the last five years worth of Saturdays a lot more enjoyable than it was growing up. Like, and when you're going to see your friends, then you have that added benefit of – the win after that, that makes it even better. But um, I, I'm just kind of sick of it. It's it's not doing it for me anymore. I guess one positive rebuttal to being in the ACC is when you deal with dumbasses who are like, oh, Notre Dame needs to join a conference. They play a week schedule. I always say, okay, you want us to join the ACC? Well, we did that one year. Went undefeated in the regular season. Lost in the conference championship game to Trevor Lawrence and Clemson. Yes, but we've just dominated everyone else. So you don't think that Notre Dame would just keep dominating in the ACC, doing exactly what they've been doing? This year, they'd be undefeated. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I mean, no they are doubt. undefeated. And it. I actually feel like I don't really hear the conference argument that much anymore. Oh, I feel like I get it all the time. I think, still. I think nobody with a brain uses that anymore. I really, like, maybe I'm just not looking in the right places or intentionally I'm missing it, but I feel like I haven't heard that for a while. And anybody that says that doesn't actually watch college football. You're right. Um, one last thing I wanted to point out. This really doesn't even have anything to do with the game as much on Saturday. Well, I guess it kind of does. But um, the last thing I didn't like is we now know for, for pretty much near certainty, uh, Kyle Hamilton's regular season is over. Um, for the first time since the injury, Brian Kelly was actually forthcoming when he talked about the status of Kyle Hamilton. And he, he made it. He gave, he gave a timetable. Let's put it that way. He said six weeks from the time of the injury is the typical recovery when, you know, what he's been doing all year right after the game, he totally undersells the injury, and, and I don't know why he does it. If it's <laughs> for the player himself, if it's for the locker room, I don't know. I don't get it, but he's been on this all season, starting with Blake Fisher, and now it's pretty clear that six weeks from the time of the injury would take him through the end of the regular season, and so I don't know if we'll ever see Kyle Hamilton in Notre Dame uniform again. We've, we've talked about it. Um, from the moment it happened, you and I were both on the same page that even if there was a chance that he could come back, why risk it? Because given the circumstances at the time, Notre Dame was pretty much out of the college football playoff picture. Now we can briefly discuss that, but I just want to say like, it's just a bummer, man. It sucks for everyone, but it doesn't suck for anyone more than Kyle because he misses out on the second half of his like figurative senior season. He missed out on some really fun games and it's just disappointing because it wasn't like a tear and maybe that hope or maybe that possibility of coming back and then not being able to, maybe that makes it worse. I don't know. But now it seems like we actually have a clear picture courtesy of Brian Kelly. And there's really nothing more else I can say than it just sucks. Yeah, it does. Um, and it definitely kind of puts a damper on the season. You feel really bad for him. Uh, kind of just really goes in tune with the whole second half of this season, to be honest. Like, yeah, we're learning a lot. 
um, about some of the younger players, but it's just boring as hell. And I know I feel like that's what we keep saying with everything, but it's got a real 2019 post Michigan feel to it, to be honest. Um, this, the difference this time is that we actually do have an out, outside shot of the college football playoff, which I know we want to get into after we talk about who's drinking free, but um, it, this game in particular felt a lot like the Duke game in 2019. We won that one 38 to seven. It was cold as hell that night. I was there um, just kind of slept through the second half again. Maybe the Wake Forest game in 2015 is another comparison. We won that one like 28 to seven. The only thing that notable really happened was Josh Adams had that 97 yard run, but I don't know. It's just like, get me out of this freaking ACC. I'm sick of it. And stop, stop. Why do we have all these injuries to all of our key players? Uh, it's not fair, but whatever. I know it happens way too often, but all right, let's real quick. Let's go over who's drinking free. And then we could talk a little bit about the playoff. I don't want to go too in depth because we'll release this Tuesday morning. And then who knows what the committee is going to do. Um, by the time some of you may be listening to this, because when you think you have an idea of what they're going to do, then they put Michigan in front of Michigan State after Michigan State beat them just two weeks prior. So I'll start. want to give drinks to uh, Bo Bauer. Um, with Drew Whiteout, Bo Bauer played the most snaps in a game for his entire career, 57, more than any other linebacker. And he played lights out, man. He finished with nine tackles, um, a sack and a half. He was all over the field. And I, I really hope we see him next year. I didn't even really consider this until Pete Sampson pointed it out. Um, we actually could get one more year at Bo Bauer because of the free season thanks to COVID. I don't know if he's considering it. I don't know what his NFL draft prospects are, but he's honestly become one of the more fun guys to root for on this roster. And I know he's 21, so I know he can accept these free drinks. So if I ever see you, Bo Bauer, Miller lights on me. I like that. And yeah, we'll be, we'll be interesting to see if he comes back or not. I hadn't really thought about it either. Um, going with another graduate student myself, Jonathan Dorr. First time he didn't have to kick a field goal, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that'd be yeah. First time all, all this season, at least. That's a that's a good night for John Dor. Uh, not having to worry about that leg on a cold <laughs> night in Charlottesville. I hope he just stayed back for a night and hit hit up Trinity on the corner and just had himself a night because he's uh, he's had to kick a lot of times this year when we haven't finished off drives and he didn't have to do that. So uh, and one time he almost did, and Kelly said, "You know what? Let's score a touchdown," and we did. So mm-hmm. um, I'm going with love John that Dorr. call. Yeah. All right, cool. So we mentioned Notre Dame's playoff chances. And, you know, there's a lot of angles here. Notre Dame still has an outside shot. What their probability is, it honestly is so all over the place because yeah. there's so much chaos. Can we talk about the ESPN happen. one? Because I don't understand it at all. Yeah, ESPN, if you haven't seen this by now, um, giving Notre Dame a 60% chance yeah. to make the playoff, which is by far the highest out of any other measurement or chart I've seen. It is, and I frankly don't really get it. Um, you know, I do think there's a chance, but it was the third highest, I think, of any team, right, behind Georgia and Alabama? It was, yeah. Which, also, Georgia and Alabama having that high, both having that high of odds, I don't think makes a lot of sense. Like, the more I think about it, I kind of think Georgia's going to blow Alabama out, so I don't think they're going to get in with two losses, and um, I, I don't know. That just doesn't really make a lot of sense, but I also don't know yeah. how any of these things are calculated. I suck at math, so I don't really try to figure it out, but I don't know. Uh, I will say, even when I was at ESPN, a lot of times looking at like FPI and stuff like that, pretty much everyone I worked with had no idea how it was calculated or what it even meant. And what I really don't understand is, right, how could Alabama and Georgia be the two teams in front of them? Because the way I see it, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but let, let me play out how I envision a path for Notre Dame to get in. And there's other ways, but I think this is like the most logical. So basically... 
Georgia would have to win out and beat Alabama in the SEC championship because if I feel like Georgia at this point is sort of earned a mulligan, and if Alabama were to beat them, they would drop but still get in because what Georgia's done this season. So okay. so far so good. I agree. Oregon would have to lose, which is possible. They got Utah twice. I actually think they're underdogs this they week. They are. They're three Utah. point dogs. Okay, so Oregon, um, if they lose, Notre Dame could jump them. Ohio State would have to win out. And if they do win out, they would beat Michigan State and Michigan. So that eliminates them. Um, Cincinnati would also have to win out. I don't really see a scenario where, like, Notre Dame, if if Cincinnati does lose, that helps Notre Dame. I I feel like they would jump them, but it also just kind of makes that loss look a little bit worse. Well, I sorry. I'm going to stop you there. I don't think that matters at all. Here's why. Oregon probably has the best win in the country. They also have the worst loss of anybody in the top 25. <laughs> That's so true. That Stanford loss just makes zero it, sense. It makes, I know Joe Moorhead was in the hospital. That doesn't matter. Still, Stanford sucks. Yeah. Um, so I don't really think that that matters if Cincinnati loses. In fact, now I'm fully on board. Go SMU, like Pony Express time. Let's go Mustangs. Okay, and then Oklahoma is sort of the wild card because they lost this past weekend to Baylor. They did not look great in that game, specifically Caleb Williams. But they also have Oklahoma State still left on the schedule as well as a theoretical Big 12 championship. Against Oklahoma State, right? Yeah. So so we want to split? If they No, I'm saying if they win both of those games, is that enough to you – know, like if you're looking at a one-loss Oklahoma and a one-loss Notre Dame, I, I, I just don't have any idea how the yeah. committee would look at that. that not, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is like they're kind of a wild card now. I, I just don't know what they do. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if um, Oklahoma State beats Oklahoma in Bedlam, then is it an Oklahoma State-Baylor Big 12 championship? So you're saying if Oklahoma loses Oklahoma State? The regular Yeah, because then it would be then it would be 7-1 Oklahoma State. They'd be the one seed. And then Baylor – well, Baylor would have to win this upcoming weekend. And they've got oh they got Kansas State and Texas Tech. So they, if they win both of those games, if Oklahoma loses one, Baylor would own the tiebreaker if yep. they finish with the same conference record. And then yeah, in which case Oklahoma State would then play Baylor. And then all of a sudden, now you're looking at Oklahoma State having a shot. Now they're playing in there. What does would the committee take a one loss Oklahoma State team who won the Big Twelve Championship over Notre Dame? I would say likely. I think they probably would win against. Yeah, against Oklahoma. So that's the thing. There's there's still a path, but it's just it's too early to say. And just given the nature of the season, given all the chaos that we've seen and the carnage that's about to happen in the Big Ten East, it's really hard to predict. So I'm sort of taking the approach of let's just sit back and wait, let the chips fall where they may. If Notre Dame has a chance to get in, as long as they're having a dance, I want Notre Dame to get invited. I don't know how great I feel about their chances of winning it. But again, it still feels so early because even though there's only two weeks left in the regular season, one week of conference championships, there's still so much that's still going to happen. You're right. There really is. Um, And this year has been interesting because um, (laughs) you watched us early in the year. I don't know that you would have thought, you know, there's a realistic chance Notre Dame has in one of these playoff games, but the more and more I think about it, the more I think this just might be the year where if they somehow sneak in, they just might find a way. Um, because I, I, I know Georgia's defense is really, really good, but I think this Stetson Bennett, you know, which magic has to run out at some point. He has to turn back to Stetson Bennett at some point um, if they keep messing around with him. 
nobody really has a good win besides Oregon against Ohio State, and they have the worst loss in the country probably too. I guess Alabama has a decent win beating Ole Miss. Uh, but, like, you look at Notre Dame's resume versus Alabama's, they're very similar. David Hale put out this yesterday, both 9-1. and one. Notre Dame lost to a top-10 team, 6-1 and one versus the FBI top 50, number three strength of record. Meanwhile, Bama's 9-1, and one, lost to a top-20 team, 6-1 and one versus FBI top 50, number two strength of record. It's like, you know, do I am I going to get upset if Notre Dame gets left out at five, well, yeah, I probably will. But but like what? I, but what I'm saying is that no, I should not get upset about that because Notre Dame lost to freaking Desmond Ritter, who looks worse and worse by the week, which is really annoying. Um, but if they get in, why the hell not? Like, and and anybody who's telling you they'd want to beat Michigan in a bowl game rather than have a chance at Georgia in the playoff. I, I just don't understand that. Like you play to win the game. I saw some people, cause that was a poll that Pete Sampson put out. He had actually said that you already know the result where Georgia's, you know, won the game. I get then like, you know, the result. Oh, why would I want to accept the loss? I'll still take a playoff loss over beating Michigan in a meaningless bowl game where who knows who's going to play. Um, it it's just like I don't care about these bowl games. College football is about the college football playoff. Whether or not you want to like it or not, like well, we still have these awesome regular season games between kind of scrubby teams like Texas and Kansas. It's all about the playoff at the end of the day, and I want to be there. And if you can say we've been in the playoff three out of the last four years, that sounds really damn impressive. It does. And uh, if Notre Dame can somehow sneak away in there through some mayhem, I'm all for it. I'll be there for that. But um, that's that's kind of what how I feel about it. We let the chips fall while they may. At the end of the day, we don't get in. We shouldn't have lost Desmond Ritter. Yeah, uh, I think we're on the same page there. And before I start talking myself into Notre Dame potentially beating George, I'm going to wait a few weeks and see what. <laughs> well, happens I'm, I'm because, definitely going to get there if it happens. Yeah, oh, I I have no doubt. <laughs> I have no doubt about that. Um, but yeah, we'll just wait and see, and we'll have plenty of time to discuss Notre Dame's playoff hopes and um, <laughs> hell, their potential damage or the potential possibility of Notre Dame. All right, actually, I'm going to say this right now. Okay, okay. If Let we, rip. If oh, we somehow sneak I'm in, not ready for this. If we somehow sneak in as a four seed, Georgia's the one seed. Think about the power of three here. Okay, this would be our third college football playoff appearance. Third game against Georgia in recent memory. And where are the two playoff games, if you remember? Miami. Miami and Dallas. Both those places would be third time the charm. All I'm saying is there's a strong power of three here. I, I don't know. Things are starting to align for me. Let's cut this before I start talking about it yeah, more. I was just, just going to say, if we go like five minutes longer, we're going to be breaking down like what we're going to be doing after Notre Dame wins the national <laughs> championship. But that's a good place to cut it there. Um, for Luke and myself, thank you all for listening. Um, we'll be back on Friday this week to discuss Notre Dame's home game, the last home game of the season. Um, until then, follow us on social media at Sunset Irish. You can hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. So we'll see you Friday. Friday.